It's just a great honor always to be here at Heart of the City Church, and uh, I can't believe it's been, how many years has it been? 16 years? 16 years, J.O., and it's been a crazy thing. It's, it's amazing. My, all my children, they're all outdoing me in the natural. Uh, my family's partying right now in Italy, uh, and I'm here in Coeur d'Alene. Yeah, come on. I felt, I really, they wanted me to cancel. I did not want to cancel. I wanted to be here. I felt I was supposed to be here. And we had a, a great, uh, we had a great weekend. And yes, did you miss something? Well, that's between you and the Lord and your journey, what you need right now. But, but we had this weekend, I held a two-day seminar here at Heart of the City, addressing what has become a national crisis in our country and a, and a really a great crisis in the church, not just in the United States of America, but all over the world. And of course, that is the crisis of, of mental and emotional health, people struggling to have healthy mental and emotional health uh, in their lives. And we see an, we're seeing an increase of suicides. We're seeing an increase, obviously, of shootings. We're seeing a, an increase of people exhibiting high levels of anxiety and people who have an overwhelming sense of hopelessness and fear. And uh, just as a pastor in our church, I'm really, I'm, I'm on paper the head guy of our church, but I haven't really functioned as the head guy for uh, about a year at least. And uh, my successor, Peter Schrader, he wanted a four-year program where he, I, I gave up less and more and more of my office in, and he gained more and more authority in the church. It was kind of like year one, they took my right arm away and year two, they took my left arm away and... <laughs> I'm really down to no arms or legs. I'm just kind of a stub walking around. That's why my name's Bob. I kind of bob it up in the mouth. I need to bring it up, don't I? I really do. But, uh, but just the other day, I had a phone call. You got to see so-and-so. He's a crisis. He's a Vietnam vet. He's out in his truck with his dog and his gun. His wife doesn't know where he is, and he just goes on binges and gets drunk and gambles away all their money. And, and so I really didn't want to meet with anybody. I wanted to get ready to come here. But sure enough, Monday, you know, uh, Thursday night, we had a, a big powwow at the church and dealing with that. At the same time that afternoon, a man who had returned to our church after many years, a very nice man, you know, sat down with me, and he's just overwhelmed. He retired at the age of 58 because he just couldn't even handle his job uh, he's so overwhelmed with depression. He just sits there now. He's probably 64, 65, stares out the window all day. That's, that's what he does. Just no motive, no motor, uh, no concentration, no development, no dream. He's just, and he knows it, he's, and he's deeply concerned. And so this is plaguing born-again Christians. It, 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 it fills up my schedule. It's, it's what I talk about a lot because of some of the things that I've gone to. And of course, when we're doing crazy things like breaking relationships and, and we're breaking friendships and we're walking out of churches, I can't believe how many friends I lost over the pandemic. I mean, I lost people who made verbal covenants to me that I didn't even ask them to make. Like, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to do this. Well, sure enough, they left me. But, uh, and then people counseling people out. I mean, just because you have an opinion. You know, I cancel you. Really? So we, we call that the absence of the freedom of speech. The absence of freedom of conscience, the absence of showing other people dignity, okay, and who they are as people. We just, you know, just, if you don't agree with me, I have nothing to do with you. Well, uh, we've never been that way as a country, and yet we're falling apart relationally. We're in a, a terrible place of fear. Now, the answer has always been the same answer. The answer is Jesus. Amen? Amen? Yet among many who do believe... And our followers of Jesus, I have witnessed over the years, they do not experience what I'm going to call the fullness of Jesus and the fullness of the life of Jesus that Jesus offers you and I. You know, it's an interesting verse in John chapter 1, verse 16. It says, from the fullness of his grace, the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. And I find there's a lot of believers who have not received the fullness of his grace and are not receiving one blessing after another, especially in, in their mental health and, and their emotional health. They're, they're suffering. And uh, 
And uh, I, I understand that and I identify with that because I was one of those believers. And, and, and for a 20-year struggle in my life, I had, to, I had to get a hold of Jesus and how can I walk out of some real unhealthy emotions and unhealthy mindsets that I had that were really taking me out of the game, taking me out of my marriage and taking me out of my ministry and had the potential just to take me out. And I had a 20-year fight and journey where Jesus brought victory. It wasn't like it was all one way for 20 years and then he came and delivered me. There was a progressive journey that I had with the Lord where he revealed his heart to me, he revealed his word to me, he revealed tools to me, and on this journey I came to a place where I can actually say that I can be considered a person who's mentally and emotionally healthy. Uh, yes, occasionally I have anxiety and diarrhea and all sorts of other stuff, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm pretty healthy. Love it. I want to share with you probably one of my favorite verses in the Bible out of Isaiah 61. I'm going to read it out of Isaiah 61, and then we're going to read it out of Luke chapter 4. It says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Sovereign Lord. Come on. A lot of people can't handle the fact that God is sovereign. You know, that God chooses who he uses. How many people have not liked certain people God's used? Like, I don't like that guy. God says, I didn't ask you. Okay, thank you, Lord. Yeah. It's God's choice. How he uses me, how he uses you, the extent he uses me, the extent he uses you. I know in the American mindset we can do whatever we want to put our hearts to, but that's just simply not true. Simply not true. I used to be an athlete, but I'm 67 years old. I, I feel good. I can go through a workout and still walk. I'm not what I was. I can't put the same goals there. I mean, it's just there are limitations on our life. Because, because the Lord has anointed me. Now, when God anoints you, and he anoints me, and he anoints Jesus, is talking about Jesus here, he has an appointment for you and I, what he, wants to, what he wants us to do with that anointing. The gifts that God gives you, by the way, are not for you. They're for the people. I used to tell our leadership team all the time, Jay was a part of that. When you give a gift to somebody, who's more important, the gift or the person you're giving the gift to? The person. And so all leadership is our gifts. The people come first. Come okay, we're a gift to the people. Our gift belongs to the people. My life belongs to the church. I am a slave of the church. And I am, I, with great joy, I, I count it a great honor to be a son and a slave of the house of God. My gift belongs to you. Your pastor's gifts belongs to you. Seth, that just got presented here, belongs to you. It's a gift to you, the people of God. He, and he says, here's the appointment, to proclaim, not to explain, but to proclaim good news to the poor. It's, it's an announcement. It's an announcement. We're not here just to talk about the gospel. We're here to proclaim the gospel. You know, Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 66, some call it the gospel according to Isaiah. Listen to ver chapter 40 and verse 9. It says, you who bring good news to Zion, Zion's a picture of the assembly of God's people, Okay, you go up on a high mountain, you who bring good news to Jerusalem, go on a high mountain. What are you going to do on that high mountain? What are you going to say to Jerusalem? You're going to lift up your voice with a shout. You're going to lift it up and you're going to say, do not be afraid. Come on, do not be afraid. And, and say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. You know, that's what we do in ministry. We don't put fear in people. We put courage in people. We put hope in people. We give good news. I mean, there's a lot of people spreading a lot of anxiety in the name of Bible teaching that's got everybody all messed up and weirded out and wigged out. You know, we got a job to finish. I mean, everyone's, everyone wants this thing to be wrapped up. There's over 6,000 unreached people groups in the world. I, I believe there's still a lot of people in America need to get saved. Do you know the United States of America, I think it's up there, number one or number two, is the most unevangelized developed country in the world? America? Yeah, only 20% of Americans are in church today. We have a job to do. What about all those people we have to reach? Come on, we got work to do. And yes, the world will rattle and shake and burp and belch and, and, uh, and all the things that take place. 
but we still got a work to do. My Bible says that this gospel of the king will be preached in all the world, okay, as an evidence, as a witness unto the end, okay, to the whole world, all nations, and then the end will come. Come on, it's coming with evidential proof to all nations. I, I use that as my barometer. And he goes on to say, it's good news, especially to the poor, people who are tormented in bondage and suffering injustice. He has sent me to bind up. The word means to inspire, means to give confidence, means to give hope, means to give courage. The actual literal meaning means to dress by covering and wrapping. We're to bring healing. We're to, to bring deliverance. We're to bring confidence. We're to bring hope. Who? The brokenhearted, the weakened, the bankrupt, the helpless, the crushed. And to proclaim freedom for the captives. Man, I'm going to say right now, I don't care what bondage you're wrestling with, Jesus declares freedom over you. And maybe right now you're not where you're to, supposed to be in that freedom, but I'm going to tell you right now, Jesus is going to get you to that freedom. You just got to know it's your inheritance. You ever met somebody that living like a pauper, but they don't realize they just inherited a million dollars and they just kind of live in like a poor person and they won the lottery, they don't even realize they won the lottery. God has given you victory and it's yours. You got to go after your inheritance. Every one of you, freedom is ours, peace is ours, blessing upon blessing. Of his grace, we have all received blessing after blessing. Now, I'm, you say, well, are you just into a prosperity gospel? No, I'm into a God is love gospel, and he's, he's here to make changes in my life and your life. Released from darkness for the prisoners, those suffering from mental torment, wrong thinking, crazy thoughts, as we use that phrase this weekend. Someone shared with me their crazy thought journal this morning. So I, I encouraged everyone to get a journal, and their journal was called Crazy Thought Journals. I want them to track their crazy thoughts. I want them to examine their crazy thoughts. You say, whoa, we have that many sickos in the church? No, we have all, all of us here are sickos. It's worse than that. Aren't you glad we don't read each other's minds? Well, that would just be horrible. You're thinking, what about me? And then we're proclaiming the, the, the year of the Lord's favor, Jubilee. Every 50 years, their debts were forgiven. We're forgiven. But not only were our debts forgiven, but their properties were restored. So God's just not in to forgive you. He's in to restore you. And listen, if we're not restored, we can't be used. You know, we can say, well, you just kind of play hurt. Well, it's true, but you just don't play as well hurt as you do playing healthy. We need to be healthy. Maybe you walk into a coffee shop, you need to light it up. I, bought, I was at the airport the other day. I'm just kind of exercising myself just to be radical in places these days. Lady behind me, I said, I want to buy her coffee. You know, I mean, we're, in past the, you know, we're past the TSA point. And she goes, you don't have to buy me coffee. I'm going to buy you coffee. I'm paying for her coffee. I said, you know, we've got enough meanness and unkindness in the world these days. We need some love. And then she just kind of melted. Well, thank you so much. It's okay. It's going to be a great cup of coffee. <laughs> now notice it, it goes on, and then, of course, it talks about the day of the vengeance of our God, so on and so forth. Let's go to Luke chapter 4. And the, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Jesus comes into the synagogue as the guest speaking rabbi. He sits. They give him a scroll. He unrolls it. He found the place where it's written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Come on, this is what he's talking about. Isaiah 61, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recover the sight for the blind and to set the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now what's interesting to me is that he stops and it does not say and to declare the day of the vengeance of God. The vengeance of God is coming at the second coming. But right now, we need to declare that God loves people. God takes no pleasure in judgment. He judges, but he takes no pleasure in it. Ezekiel tells us that. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, he said. And so he actually says in Proverbs, if I rejoice in his judgment over somebody, he will release his judgment. 
And so we, we need to know we're living in the age right now of the favor of the Lord to say there's good news. Come on, you got healing that's going to be your portion. You got restoration. God wants to put your family together, wants to put your, your brain together, wants to put your emotions together. Come on, that's what we're, we're doing. And then Jesus does this. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he said, and he began saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is about me. And I want you to know that that was Jesus 2,000 years ago, and that same person, Jesus Christ, is here now by his holy presence. He is here with us. The kingdom of God is here because Jesus is here. He said, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. He wasn't talking about the second coming. He was talking about coming in the power of the Spirit. He said, you guys know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Come on, we got Jesus here today, amen? One one, one phrase J.O. and I both love is that Jesus is in the house. Everyone say that with me. Jesus is in the house, okay? Now now, now everything's good. doesn't matter what's going on because I got Jesus in the house. So let's talk about this thing called mental health since I got 10 minutes and 57 seconds left here. And my favorite piano player is coming up here. Mental health includes this. It's our emotional and psychological and social well-being. That's what the basic definition. It affects how we think, feel, and act. It also helps determine how we handle stress. How many people know some people don't handle stress real well? How we handle handle stress, how we relate to others. How many would agree with me that we're not always good in the skill of relating to other people? We do things like passive-aggressive behavior and avoidance and triangulation, all sorts of things I could throw out at you. And how we make choices. And a lot of people make some very, very dumb choices. This affects my walk with God. This affects my relationship with others in the local church. And it really affects the way that I'm, or if I'm going to fulfill the mission God has given me. I gotta, I gotta get well. You gotta get well. So what's emotional health? I'm using both these terms. It's an aspect of mental health. It's your ability to cope with both positive and negative emotions. We all have them, don't we? You all have that moment of fear. Sometimes you get out of bed, you're just not real motivated. You're overwhelmed with a little bit of depression. You you got times when you're up all night, you don't sleep because you don't know what you're going to do and paying the bills because, you know, they're cutting back your hours at work. And, you know, you have a young young person who's got a lot of medical bills going on and you're, you know, God, where are you? And you're, you're just not doing well emotionally because of these things. We all have them. But the key to emotional health is, you know, you can recognize them, you're aware of them, you know how to cope with them. Emotionally healthy people have good coping mechanisms. That's what we dealt with this weekend. I didn't wave a wand and everyone all of a sudden their fears went away. All of a sudden they all felt happy. They came in depressed, they're all happy. We, we, we dealt with coping skills, how to work through those emotions. We all have them, all human emotions, we do. Now why is an important issue in the church? Why, why am I on this? Obviously because God's done a very wonderful work in my life And I'm in a place where I I experience blessing upon blessing, the fullness of his grace. But it took me a long time in that journey to get there. And so one thing is this. reason is because mentally healthy people are more able to see their full potential. Because you think and believe what God thinks and believes about you. A lot of people think and believe about themselves, not what God thinks about them. Now, I'm prophesied to many people around the world. It's amazing when you start sharing what God thinks about them. They break and weep because they're thinking something else about themselves. Second, because mentally healthy people can cope with the stresses of life. I mean, everybody, everybody's going to get a storm. Everybody here is going to get a trap. Sorry, everyone's going to get a tragedy. Every, there's a test that's going to come to every house, every marriage. I mean, isn't it amazing that we... That we have all these chick flicks, these romance, you know, 90-minute comedies or dramas, and they always end with the wedding? That's the beginning of sorrows. I'm so glad my wife's in Italy right now. 
You know, as I say, the two shall become one. They just spend the rest of the marriage trying to figure out which one, you know. <laughs> There's three rings. You got your engagement ring, you got your wedding ring, and then you have suffering. Okay. <laughs> I think this is coming to an end of my time and coming to Harvest City. Three is because mentally healthy people can be productive in their work. They're not just focused on this and this and they can't concentrate. They, 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 they're able to focus because they know how to cope with their moods and their emotions and their crazy racket and their head and all those things that take place. And they're able to concentrate on the will of God and loving people and fulfilling their responsibilities in their family and their job and the community and everything else. And because mentally health forth and mentally healthy people can make positive contributions to the local church and the communities where they live. I mean, I've just, you know, I've taken people like on mission trips and teams and it's just amazing how psycho the body of Christ is. Like, okay, I need, Bob, when we go to that house and we're all going to be sleeping on the floor, I, I can't sleep on the floor. <laughs> well, I don't know what to do because that's all they got. Okay. Do you sleep standing up? I mean, what are we going to do here? <laughs> Suck it up. Okay, here we go. I used to train our youth group back in the Bible Temple days when we were going on mission trips. I, I, all Saturdays, I did for like five, six Saturdays before we got on the plane. And, and uh, there the kids were. They were hungry teenagers at lunchtime. And I said, hey, we got a great lunch for you. Dry tortillas. Anything else? No, just that. I said, John, would you please pray and thank God for these dry tortillas? What was I doing? I was trying to get them mentally tough because they're going to eat some weird stuff. Have you ever been in another country? They have weird things. Now, here's the issue. The church has been absent from the mental health field because of suspicion. And, and, and there's some legitimate. I covered this in the seminar this weekend, and, uh, I, and I respect the suspicion because some feel there's not a compatibility with psychology and theology. You know, not all psychology would agree with theology, but we somehow, we don't swallow the meat and spit out the bones, we just reject the whole thing. Science will confirm scripture. And there's a science and study and behavioral people and clinically observing them. Or, or they feel like we're gonna dilute the power of the gospel. You just need to believe. Well, I'm gonna tell you as a believer in Christ, I believed. I studied and devoured the Bible. I mean, I, I, I devoured scripture. I fasted. I prayed. I worshiped. I worshiped real loud. I almost got beat up by a demonized guy because I was singing so loud worshiping. Okay? Yeah, yeah, he was going to punch me right in the face. You shut up. You sing too loud. And I my hands are up. Hey, Jesus. Sue looks at the, the guy. She puts her arm around me. The guy's going to punch me. But, but my issue is this, is that it didn't take away the racket in my mind. All the things I was doing was not working. And, we, and I, the power of the gospel is working in me to become a servant of his. It robs us of the power of God to be partakers of the divine nature. That's what people are thinking. If we just kind of get into the thing like, you know, I got a real serious OCD problem or I got depression, and then we're kind of diluting the power of God. No. In my weakness, I am what? I mean, God would use a depressed person? Yeah. You're in good company here if you've suffered from some things like that. I, I, I was tormented for years. It was a 20-year journey, beating myself in the face because I hated myself so much, tormented by inferiority that was behind everybody else, comparing myself with everybody, always coming short, always unsure that I did the right thing or I said the right thing, and constantly going back and trying to correct mistakes that I didn't make and, and uh, being in a state where I couldn't get thoughts out of my mind and I was physically present with my wife but I was in la-la land. I couldn't be present with her because I was dealing with a racket in my brain. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on and on. So it's not just me, but you're in good company. There's many great Christians that have been plagued with poor mental health. Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers. He was so anointed. One time he went into a cathedral he was looking at and he just wanted to check the acoustics, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And there was a carpenter working up in the rafters. And when, when he said that, the carpenter got saved. Come on. That's called the anointing of an evangelist. That's anointing. That's right. And he was, 
he was plagued with depression. He could preach a 40-minute message with one page of notes, speaking 140 words a minute. And this guy was gifted. This is what he said about himself. He says, I could say with Job, my soul chooseth strangling rather than life. Who wrote that? Charles Spurgeon wrote that about his own life. And yet, look what God had done with him. How about Charles Wesley, the brother of John Wesley? Hark the herald angels sing. How many people know that song? Over a thousand tongues to sing. He wrote that. Many other hymns. A great hymn, one of the greatest hymnists of church history. He was plagued with depression. He forbode doing anything. He, he did it because out of obedience, but he was miserable doing it. He didn't want to face it. They, they said he had died when he was over in the colonies preaching the gospel, and he got back to England, and he visits this lady named Mrs. Pendarvis, Pen and she's reading a letter about him dying when it wasn't true. And he says, I called upon Mrs. Pendarvis while she was reading a letter about my being dead. And he listen to what he says. Happy for me, happy for me had the news been true. I, in other words, I wish that were true, that I was dead. He says, what a world of misery it would save me. It would save me from this miserable world. This is one of the greatest hymn writers in the history of Christianity. How about Martin Luther? Started off the, the, you know, the whole Reformation. He was a nutcase. He had OCD on steroids. He said, if I continued to be a monk, monkery would have killed me. He was confessing sins, and his confessor said, would you please go out and do something worthy to confess? He would, he would beat himself, starve himself. I mean, he would just do things trying to get the favor of God. And that, of course, drove him to the scriptures. And he found in Romans that the just shall live by faith, not by works. And it saved him. You know, some of your dark seasons in your soul drive you to the very thing God wants to drive you to. And then, of course, Florence Nightingale. She was bipolar. Dr. Gabe Merkin writes about her. She experienced periods of extreme productivity, followed by depression that left her with long periods of not being able to work, just stayed in bed forever. She often described herself as a failure and worthless, even though she received the Royal Red Cross from Queen Victoria and many other honors during her long life. We need the wisdom of Juan Luis Vivis. And I know you probably don't know who he was. He was a philosopher born in 1493. He was received by some great thinkers and Christian thinkers of his time. He's known as the father of psychology because he had a great compassion about the human mind and the human soul. And he wrote this. There is nothing in the world more excellent than man, nor in man than his mind. Particular attention should be given to the welfare of the mind. We kind of just kind of go past it, just believe Jesus. But people have a mind that's sometimes not working well. And it should be considered a highest service if we either restore the minds of others to sanity or keep them sane and rational. One ought to feel great compassion for so great a disaster to the health of the human mind. And it is of utmost importance that the treatment be such that insanity be not nourished and increased. It is important that we become mentally and emotionally healthy so that we can think the way God wants us to think and believe what God wants us to believe so we can fulfill the mission God gives us. I want to challenge you to go to work on your soul. Well, what about how do I get out of this? Well, that's what the seminar was about. Right. <laughs> no, I don't want to put any guilt on anybody. Your pastor does, but I'm trying to settle him down. But there's people who came, and part of the seminar was to equip them to become coaches and facilitators to help you. So go to them. Go read their notebook. Get some information. Do some research. Talk to people. Just talk about your crazy thoughts to people. You got some weird thoughts. It's going to encourage you. You got weird thoughts. 
And if you guys are running my slides, I'd like you to just kind of fast forward them all the way down to what can poor mental and emotional help be attributed to, okay? If you can see that, what can poor mental and emotional help be, uh, help, not help, health be attributed to. I got help there, but it shouldn't be there. It was a typo. Uh, but I want to kind of finish what I couldn't. And what was happening is every time I was preaching, I, I provoked a great inspiration of a piano player playing behind me. <laughs> and if someone came out with a hook, they wanted me off the stage. So I want to kind of finish the sermon. But I, I really want to kind of lay this out and you can probably put this in two parts for people that weren't here, didn't go to the seminar, because it'll give you a little bit of what we're talking about. Now, this is a crisis in our nation right now. You know, the CDC came out with a report that 40% of adults that they surveyed were suffering from anxiety, depression, and fear. Out of that 40%, 11% of those adults within 30 days of that study had considered suicide. Of the 18 to 25-year-olds who took that study, within 30 days of that study, had considered 25% of 18 to 24-year-olds suicide. I started off 2020 with a member of my church for 20, 21 years. He hung himself. I ended 2020 with a, with a, with a father and a husband whose wife left him, and Pastor Peter and I were processed with him. Five days later, he blew his brains out. Okay, I, that's how I pastored in 2020. This is what we were dealing with. And so what we've seen happen is we've seen this issue begin to just grow rapidly, intensify nationally, in the church, and globally. This is the subject that pastors want to talk to me about all the time. In fact, one pastor, my good friend David Freck, he's just a great pastor, and his church is Church of the Harvest in Olathe, Olathe Kansas, outside of Kansas City. He, he, I just preached for him. He wants me to bring him back four weeks, in four weeks to do the seminar because we need it so bad. And he goes, I'm not even here. You're going to do it. I'm in, I'm in Nigeria doing a conference. But that's how much he is facing that in Kansas City. So we, we got ourselves some real challenge. I, this was put together before all this took place. It's just that the wheels are falling off as we speak. And of course, the answer is always Jesus. Amen? It's always Jesus. And, and I was quoting this verse in the first service. I love John 1.16. Of his, the, out of the fullness of his grace, we have all received. Now, it's a pretty confident statement that John is making. He's making an assumption that we've all received the fullness of his grace. And he says, blessing after blessing. Well, I have found that a lot of believers have not received the fullness of his grace, blessing after blessing, because their thinking has been skewed. Their, their soul has been broken. Their brain has been broken. Their, their emotions have been broken. And because those things have taken place, it, it, it's hard for them to even interpret, to interpret to receive that fullness of grace, blessing after blessing. I talked with, a, I, I, after I did this, my first seminar, the pastor of that particular church said, will you work with our worship leader? And I, 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 I witnessed this worship leader leading in the seminar and the services that I was in prior to the seminar, and I could tell there was a great anointing on this young man. There's a, a great anointing. He's like a Seth. He's, grace was strong in him. But he was messed up. He says, you need to go help my worship leader. And uh, this kid would lock himself in a room and turn the lights off, stay there for 72 hours. He thought no one wanted him to be around. He thought he was going to be fired every day, went to church to go to work. He thought he was going to get fired. He felt he was going to get rejected. People didn't want him around. I mean, he had so much negative, dark thoughts, and yet God had put his spirit on him. Isn't that kind of interesting that God puts his spirit on broken vessels? The Bible says we have this treasure in clay jars, clay vessels. You know, in the, old, in the, the Bible days, when they wanted to hide something valuable, they didn't put it in beautiful vases because that's the first place people would look. They put their values in unassuming places, places that wouldn't be considered like a broken vase. And that's where I'll put the most valuable things that I possess. You know, one of the most valuable things God possesses is his anointing. And guess what he does? He puts it in places people are not expecting it to be, broken people, 
And so this kid was broken. Amen. This was broken. So I said, I will, I will work with him. And, and we had FaceTime appointments. And as he began to discover the doctrine of grace, which is a key element to this, and understood how God loves him in his weakness and loves to use him in his weakness, and we began to deal with the lies that he had about himself, about the lies he had about the way he thought people in his life thought about him. And we, ended, we dealt with that. Tears would come down his face. And he began to break and get really, get really whole to the point that my friend, Pastor Tyrone Jones, he, he, he said, Bob, I, I don't normally do this, but this guy's so anointed. There's such a release of the presence of God in our church now. I just don't want to preach. I just want worship just to keep going. What happened, God touched him, and in that, he started tasting the fullness of his grace, the fullness of his grace. So we, we can kind of break down what bad mental health looks like. I think you all have your own basic definition, what a bad emotional health looks like. We all have our, our own definition. I just want to say this. Most churches don't have conflict over doctrine. Most churches have conflict over bad relational skills, bad emotions, Bad feelings, cognitive distortions, wrong thinking, wrong dots that people connect, wrong fears, wrong anxiety, depression, hurt, wounds. You know, that's what blows churches up. It's not our doctrine. We all have a little different doctrine here and there. I love what Augustine did on his deathbed, one of the great theologians of the church. He sat up. He says, I've seen glory. All that I've written is straw. Put his head back down and went to heaven. <laughs> what we got is broken people who haven't gotten healed yet. Now, I love good doctrine. I love the Bible. But, but what's hurting us is wounds that haven't been healed. So let's talk about what can poor mental, emotional health be attributed to. And, then, and, I, and I'm giving a little rehearsal, a rehearsal here of those who did take the seminar, because I want to address this real quick. One is wrong lives. Wrong lives. In other words, you, you behave bad, you feel bad. When you sin, you don't feel good. How many of you, when you're driving around the city or out in a country road, and you see a deputy sheriff, marshal, cop, he's driving his car, do you feel like a little, like something, you could, something could happen to get pulled over? Could you, you raise your hand? Okay. What you're suffering from is sin. The Bible says this, the wicked flee when no one pursues. You just, you just don't feel like you're A game when you sin. Someone comes up to you and says, I just feel like I'm a horrible person. Instead of just starting going, you know, you need to believe what God says about you, you should ask, is there anything you're doing that's making you feel bad? Well, no, why would we do that? Because they're feeling bad for what they did. You can't have good self-esteem and go shoot somebody. Right. You can't have good self-esteem and steal from somebody. You just can't. You're not going to feel good about yourself. Right. I mean, you can act cool, but inside you're haunted. So we, we, gotta, we have wrong lives that lead to bad behavior, that lead to psychological issues. I, I gave the example in the seminar of, of Nebuchadnezzar. He you know, God said to him, you know, I've established your kingdom. And he couldn't handle it. He couldn't handle it that he didn't establish the great Babylon. And he flipped out. And he started acting like an animal. His hair became like eagle's feathers. And his nails like bird claws. And he's out in the fields with the dew on all fours, eating grass. You say, man, that's the nice fairy tale out of the Bible. But you can go to any psych ward in the United States, and it's called lycanthropy. It's an actual psychotic condition. He flipped out because he couldn't handle the sovereignty of God. Now, I've watched a lot of believers not be able to handle the mysteries of life, wow. that bad things happen to all of us. Wow. Wow. A lot of you ladies heard my daughter at the women's event this last fall. And by the way, she just got married. And uh, she, so God's done a really work of restoration. But three years ago, my son-in-law, Ryan, on a vacation in Palm Springs, who was, who was rehearsing what he was going to preach at our church in four days, okay, he said, something's wrong with me. His face got numb. And he, bam, he dropped dead of a st stroke, aneurysm. 
His heart was stopped by the time he got to the hospital. And so here he was, father of two, five years of marriage. They were just moving their business forward. He was getting ready to be promoted in our church as a real teacher in our church, and the whole thing just crashed. Now, that's something to work through. My daughter, to her credit, has worked through it in an incredible way. I mean, she became a student of grief. And she went after it. She did everything that she should do. She got involved in a, following a podcast called uh, Terrible. Thank you for asking. She got, she got started following a group called Hot Widows. It's a little group. She went, to a, went to a psychologist every week whose wife had committed suicide. Worked through this thing, dug through this thing, and got back into worship. And I mean, she didn't quit, but she went and did her thing. Listen, bad things can happen to us. And when we face those things, a lot of people can't handle the sovereignty of God. And they fall off the wagon. I'm I'm blessed that I have a a family that's extremely sarcastic. I don't know where they got it from, but... uh. But they can laugh at adversity and even have laughter in the midst of terrible suffering. After she laid next to her husband saying thank you for the five years after they took him off the ventilator, everybody else was in the waiting room of a hospital. We were all by ourselves. Some of my son-in-laws were on all fours just wailing. And in comes Leslie and she sits down Everyone goes kind of quiet. She has a, a box of Tampex. She pulls one out. She says, thank God I have one of these. And then everybody just started laughing. Wow. Now you can say, well, that's not appropriate at the time. You know what? There's nothing called appropriate at a time like that. And, uh, and um, you know, she handled the sovereignty of God. But a lot of people can't. And because they can't, they break. So wrong lives will lead to this. Wrong biology. You know, there are a lot of studies now about the relationship, the relationship of diet and certain foods and my moods and my thoughts. You need to study through it. In fact, I just talked to somebody in the first service about schizophrenia that they have seen that niacin has actually helped schizophrenics. And so we, 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 we have a hard time sometimes understanding that we are biological, and we think that that is not spiritual. And this is how I lay it out with people, try to help them. If I was a truck pulling a trailer, okay, the trailer's not the truck, but the trailer does affect the truck. I am not just a complex form of molecules, Okay, I am a spirit being made in the image of God, and so are you. Okay, but I do have a body that's been given to me. And this is very important because you, people can become Greek in their thinking. You know why Paul offended the, the, the Greek philosophers at Athens was the fact that he said God has committed judgment to one man and he's given him this judgment because he raised him from the dead. It was at that point that he offended the Greeks. That's all, we're putting on our togas and we're out of here. Because the Greeks wanted to be emancipated from the body. But Christian theology is we're going to be joined to our body. And thank God we get a new body. I mean, I can't wait to get mine. 32-inch waist, ripped, 8% body fat. It's going to be great. I do not have that right now. So wrong biology can contribute to to all sorts of moods and behaviors and stuff. And so biology does affect this. And, and, and Christians go, no, 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 no. They just need to be delivered from demons. Well, how about your Aunt Susie that has dementia? Well, that's, you know, that's different. You have dementia. What do you think dementia is? Starts with the brain. So you got a little Pentecostal church ladies cussing like a sailor. Well, I've, I've seen it. I got one right now in my church, a, a missionary, one of the godliest women I know. I mean, when I go see her, she goes, you get out of here, you piece of, and that's how I'm greeted. She never talked that way before. You think that she, I don't know where she got those words, but we get a lot stored in our memory banks, don't we? And they're just coming out. It's not her. 
There's something wrong with their brain. Wrong biology. Wrong done to us. And of course, we talked about the damaging effect of abuse and neglect on brain development. And there's a lot of things that happened to us. And what happened to me, what happened, it, it began to bring a view of who I was in relationship to other people. I was inferior. I was dumber. I was at the back of the line. They were at the front of the line. They were privileged. I was underprivileged. Okay, they were favored. I was cursed. I remember being 17 years old, sitting on the doorstep of my apartment, looking at a refinery, a standard oil refinery, and saying, my life will always be cursed. I will never be smart. I will never have health. I will never have anything clean. We lived in a garbage dump. I will always have these things. I'll always be in pain inside. Okay, that's my life. And so I always thought I was behind because the abuse and the neglect that I experienced created lies within me that became part of my inner reality. Even when I got saved, well, you need to believe the word and confess the word. I, you know, that I did, and I couldn't get by if I did not do that. But it wasn't just enough. There was other things I had to understand because some of my thoughts were involuntary. My brain had been hurt. Okay, I had involuntary things coming in me that I didn't want in my head. And I didn't know how to get rid of them. And I began in my journey to learn how to get rid of those things. So we have wrong done to us. Then we have wrong experiences like PTSD, stress, toxic stress experiences. I'll never forget when I was uh, living in our first house that we owned, and it was kind of in a rougher neighborhood in Vancouver. We didn't have really rough neighborhoods in Vancouver, but it was a rougher neighborhood. And uh, it was in the early morning, and my practice was getting up at 6 a.m. and praying. It, wasn't, it was dark out. And I'm praying, and we have two daughters at this particular junction, another young college lady living with us. Everyone's asleep, 6 a.m., November, Saturday morning, and I'm praying in this chair, and I could hear someone on my porch. We had a 1913 bungalow house, had a door with two windows in it like this, and I could see this guy with a beanie hat, long hair, army jacket. He's scanning my living room. And so I don't know what made me do this, but I crawled on my horse up to the door, and I came up the door, and I'm staring at the guy like this, and all of a sudden I said, get out of here! And the guy just took off like a jackrabbit. <laughs> and uh, I called the police, 911, he's running north through the school for the blind, he's going to McLaughlin Boulevard, you need to get here right now, so the police come to my house. I said, what are you doing? And by the time they got to my house, I had a two by four in the front, front yard. I mean, I was ready to go. Let's, and I was ready to take on the cops, okay? You, <laughs> Dumb cops, what are you doing, Harry? He went that way. And they say, well, it doesn't sound like the guy that's been a rapist in the neighborhood. I said, rapist in the neighborhood? I got my wife, my two daughters. I got a, I got a college-age uh, student living downstairs. What do you mean, rapist? And I was just amped for about a half hour. And for the next six months, I slept with one eye open. Every creak. I was in fight mode for six months. That's called PTSD. It wasn't like, oh, man, God really delivered us out of that. No, I, I, I faced violence. The guy wasn't going to come in and just, you know, spray holy water over my living room. <laughs> it was out to do my family harm. And then we have, we have wrong gods. And this is where you get into the demonic have a, a woman who attended our church off and on, gorgeous woman. I mean, she's a very attractive, gorgeous woman. I think she knew that she was gorgeous and always kind of went the extra mile to look even more gorgeous. But I remember running into her one time at a Baja Fresh restaurant with her husband was there, and she was reading this occultic book, you know, like haunted houses to go visit and stuff. And she had a little fascination with that part of the world. And she's broken now. She's lost her mind, lost her family. She's gone insane. You can't keep the door open to demons. Now, we're in the West. We just don't think about demons. But in other parts of the world, it's very much a part of their worldview. And then we need to make sure we keep our door closed to them. So bringing this down, I got one minute left on that clock, but they said I could go a little bit over because you're not going anywhere. All right, here we go. <laughs> I want to give you seven things really quickly here. 
Seven things a believer needs to do to get mentally and emotionally healthy. First is this. You got, you're going to get healthy by adopting a biblical worldview. A worldview about man and his nature and his makeup, not only made in the image of God, but in his brokenness because of the fall. We need to get fixed. The whole head is sick, Isaiah said. From the top of the head to the sole of his feet, there is no soundness or no, or no wholeness in him. He's full of bruises and putrefying sores, it says in the King James. We need to get a, a right doctrine that we're working with a society that's broken because of sin. Second thing is we need to end this worldview. You really need to grab a hold of the cross. If you do not understand the cross, you don't stay close to the cross, you don't have your identity in the cross, you will never get whole. You need to, get, you need to, you need to understand your identity and who God says you are. And you need to embrace that. There's a lot of neat songs out. I am who I say that I am. And those are great, but it's even deeper than that because Jesus had a lot more to say about our identity than just the fact we're adopted and saved and loved. That's important. But we're other things too. You're also anointed. You're going to rise up and God wants to use me. Say to the person next to you, God wants to use you. Come on. Come on, everybody. God wants to use you in a miraculous way. You see, we think power manifestations are going to come through holy men. You know, they're going to come through holy people, men and women. God's going to do extraordinary things through ordinary people. So you got to get a hold of that. Man, I'm an instrument that God wants to use. Come on, we, we, we need to understand the work of the Spirit in our life. And the work of the Spirit comes in. It's not just to hug me, give me goosebumps, to make me cry. He's coming to transform me. Okay, God is not a cuddler. I want to say that. He's, he's a trainer. He's a trainer. I remember when my wife and I started CrossFit, and, uh, and Sue walks in and, uh, to the, the warehouse one night on a cold January night, and there's a guy outside curled up in an embryo position in the mud, just got, down, got done with a workout. She runs into our owner and coach, Adam Neifer, and uh, she says, there's a guy out there. He's all curled up, and he goes, ah, he'll be fine. <laughs> but sometimes God puts us through things, and he says, they'll be fine. They'll be fine. Here's the issue. Sometimes you're weak. God puts you in horrible situations that actually extenuates that weakness to drive you to a place of getting healed. Come on. Come on. Wow. Drove Luther to the word. Wow. He drove Luther to the revelation that changed church history the last 500 years through his OCD symptoms. Well, he sometimes drives us to his feet by some of these things. So you got to understand grace. And, and I'm telling you, if you don't understand grace, you don't have the doctrine of grace, you got to get down into the doctrine of grace and you got to really understand it. It's two things. It's favor. Woo! It's favor. God favors you. You're a king's kid. He favors you. But it's also a force. He's going to change you. In other words, we're becoming who he says we are. We're not there yet. John Nash, I mean John Nash, John Newton writer of, the, of the, the song Amazing Grace, he says, I am not what I am supposed to be, but I thank God by his grace, I'm not what I was. Yes. Come on, you, you know, guys that lift weights and stuff, they love workouts and they, they love, love, you know, like, how'd you doing? Oh man, I, had, I did abs yesterday, man, my abs are sore, you know. My quads, oh, they're burned and lactic acid. You know, we like talking about a good workout. You know, devotions, we should come out of our prayer closet sometimes, not every time, come out where God just kind of works us over. How was devotions? Oh, it was so good. Ooh. Ooh. Got some repenting to do. Ooh. It's all good. You're getting devastated. You get devastated for God's glory. Amen. It's all good. It just hurts a little bit. It'll be over. We got to also, by recognizing that sin affects us mentally, emotionally, rationally, and physically. Come on, it, it affects us completely. Sin has a horrible effect on us. So what happened when we fell, we just said, God, we're going to go alone. Well, good luck. And so we have to handle the stresses of life because we don't have God involved in this thing. We have to worry. We have to control, become control freaks, overworkers. We have to... We have to judge other people. We have to manipulate to, to fight to get what we want. We have to be dog-eat-dog dog because we did it like Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. 
I think now that Frank Sinatra's on the other side, he may have a different song he would come up with. Three, by, by brutal self-honesty. It's okay to be tough on yourself as long as you don't condemn yourself and put yourself down. Just be a little bit, I could do better. I could have I responded better to that situation. I, I could have not reacted so much to that. I, I can do better next time. Come on, without condemning yourself, you've got to be brutally honest with yourself on what's going on. That means you've got to allow yourself to be uncomfortable. So a lot of things I do as a pastor that trigger what happened to me in my past. But God's used the pastorate for me not to avoid it or run from it, but to press into it so that God may continue to heal that thing in me. Fourth thing is this, by living God, excuse me, by inviting God to search you. You know, over digging and looking at yourself sometimes could be, it could be psychologically damaging, but I'm talking about allowing God to come. And Lord, just, you come, just show me. David said, Lord, cleanse me from my secret faults and keep me back from presumptuous sins. So we all need to just take a little time out, go for a walk on a Friday night. Just, you know, I just need to spend two or three hours by myself. J.O. does this a lot. He, he finds ways to get alone. And I can tell you one of the reasons why he does, because he and I go through some of the same stuff emotionally, is to get yourself realigned, because we know if we don't, we can get like this. And just, God, just, just deal with the wrong attitude and Lord, help me with my secret faults. Even show me my secret faults. Help me with my blind spots. Things I'm not thinking about that I'm infecting others. Lord, reveal to me. Other five is inviting the input of others. You know, a lot of people can't do that. We do this thing called the 360. You ask people who are over you, maybe they're on your left, your right, or under you. They could be family, friends in the church, leaders. You just ask them to give you input on in how they perceive you and what you positively bring to the team, negatively bring to the team, what you can work on. I have an elder in my church that he went through that, and he couldn't, he was like, you know, it was like, men of, what, what, what was that Jack Nicholson movie where he said, you can't handle the truth? You couldn't handle the truth. I lost him as an elder. And what happened he would deal with situations. He says, I went and sought the Lord about was I right or not. And the Lord, you know, the Lord, it seemed to me, every time he did that, the Lord always told him he was right. I said, well, you're talking the wrong thing. You need to talk with everybody. Get input from other people. How do I impact you? I mean, some of the worst things my wife said to me, like sometimes I don't like you. I mean, I don't like it when my wife says that. Okay. One time she said, I've been mad at you for like the last two months. Have you not perceived it? I felt like I'm so stupid. I mean, how did I, how did I miss that? Well, first, I'm a man. <laughs> Didn't you notice? No, I just thought you were grumpy. And, uh, and I go to work. That wakes me up big time if Sue's feeling that about me. We're going to be married 44 uh, years here in a few days. Okay. And, and they and they've not, have not all been wonderful 44 years. They've been covenant years, and we've growing years, and we work through things years, and, and, but we're growing. We're growing through that. So invite the input of others. Your spouse, well, you don't know my spouse. Well, I probably don't, but God does, and that's why he gave you your husband or wife. Invite leaders and friends and just, hey, talk to me. You want to work on yourself, number six. You're going to get healthy by going to work on yourself. Get to work on your thinking. I asked everybody in the seminar to do a crazy thought journal, to have a journal where they keep track of their crazy thoughts, and then to do an analysis on them and create alternate realities of what was true, because these things lie to you like no one's business, and we all got them. Slowing down long enough to work on things in your heart. And lastly, by committing to a healthy lifestyle of of a number of things. A lifestyle of rest. You know, you weren't made to be in constant stress. God worked six days, and then what did he do on the seventh? Rest. Rested. What did he say to the disciples? Come away with me and rest for a while. You can't live under constant stress. Renewal, fill yourself up. What fills you up? Get filled up. 
Sometimes as a pastor, what really fills me up is a good violent movie. Sue, put Braveheart on. You must have had a really bad day at the office. As I said, nutrition is a huge role. Exercise. Listen, we're genetically the offspring of hunters and farmers. Not farmers on a big, giant, powered, you know, combine. Farmers had a big mule that they had to plow a whole field for eight hours a day. Okay, that's our genetics, not to be couch potatoes. We're not, we're not, the, we're not the, the great-grandchildren of couch potatoes. So we got to function, walk, pick things up, move. Okay, we can't, be, we can't get healthy just laying around. And then we just got to become self-aware in that. We got to literally commit to a healthy lifestyle of helping myself become self-aware. And part of that is opening my life up to others so they can help me see myself. 